So we've been here, or more precisely, you've been here. A few days now, uh, I've been in and out in that time, and in just coming back into the space again, I feel and appreciate the sense of dedication that I feel here. And uh, there's something about the first few days of a retreat, although for some of you, you've been here for a little longer than that, where we find ourselves settling more and more deeply into our experience. Moving through perhaps waves of activity going on in the mind, the body, and it seems in the world around us. And at times things quietening, settling, steadying. The invitation in this practice is to really include everything. No matter what particular orientation or intention we might be focusing upon. Clearly in the insight practice that is the vision and direction to include the fullness of our human experience and the in the lens of reflective contemplation. But equally also in the development of, of the heart and the cultivation of, of metta, karuna, mudita and upekka, the brahma-viharas of kindness, compassion, joy and equanimity. We also, it seems, are called and invited to include all of our experience. And even with the development of, of samatha, of calm, tranquility, unification of heart and mind, in this practice we, of course, are clearly choosing to focus in a very particular way to gather the attention, to collect the energy of the heart and mind. And yet we, in the sense of allowing or including everything, it's important that we don't make obstacles or problems out of that which arises that is not our chosen topic of attention and development. And in that way, a certain spirit of inclusivity can be understood to really pervade all modes and forms of practice. Even while we may make choices to give attention in some regions and others not. We can notice the difference between a choice to include or to focus and where there may be at times a sense of somehow wishing to avoid to get rid of or to somehow 
deny a place to that which might arise, which is not in line with what we were looking or wishing for. And so this quality of inclusivity is something very powerful. The the habit and tendency of the contracted heart and mind when bound in patterns of, of self and suffering loses very easily that inclusivity, becomes picky in the sense of willing to include some but not all of what's here. There's a real kindness to ourselves, equally to the experience itself, when we, when we acknowledge its place, the place of each experience and the opportunity it offers us for deepening and understanding and heartfulness and equally the opportunity for deepening and, and calm, either as the vehicle of our focus or as the opportunity for disentanglement, letting go, not picking up what doesn't need to be picked up. And specifically in the trajectory of the insight practice, we begin with this focus and the simplicity of body, breathing and the simple form of experience that appears. Moving on also to discern clearly the aspect of experience in which quality of, of pleasant, unpleasant and neutral is revealed. And seeing how this is the often compelling trigger, we could say, for our reactivity, for the tendency to crave, grasp and try and take hold of the pleasant, the pleasurable, to reject, to push away, to try and avoid that which is unpleasant and to disconnect, be disinterested in, not engaged with that which is neither pleasant nor unpleasant. Understanding this mechanism is really central to to understanding what it means to free our heart and mind. And in that again there can be a sense of a, a welcoming of each experience, understanding that they, whether pleasant, unpleasant or neutral, 
All experience offers us the opportunity to connect. When we recognize our habitual reactivity, we don't need to enact it. We don't need to identify with and go along with those movements. And equally when we notice that we have. We can see for ourselves the effect that has in the heart and mind as we become entangled in reactivity or disconnectedness. Seeing the capacity, the willingness to turn again towards what's here with a sense of interest and openness, a welcoming and a willingness. In one sense it seems like that's the sort of the kindergarten practice, it's just the beginning, and yet it seems to be part of what we need to do again and again. Perhaps we can't hear that too many times. And I'd like to speak a little this morning about the, the contemplation of the, the citta, the heart-mind, that the Buddha spoke of as the third of the four primary fields into which we are invited and encouraged to bring this open-hearted attentiveness, this curious presence and sensitivity of heart and mind to the very condition of this heart and mind itself. And the word citta is often translated as mind, but I think heart-mind is a, a more resonant way to articulate it. Mind we often think of in terms of our, our thinking. And citta is really the field in which the thinking is sensed and recognized and equally in which our experience is sensed and recognized. And so it has this uh, quality of sensitivity. It's affected. And it has the capacity for responsivity. It responds, it reacts, according to the qualities arising or present in it. And beginning to discern this is a important and powerful element of practice. And again, I'm not imagining that most of you are, well, I am imagining that most of you are quite familiar with this, and of course, maybe not. So it's not as if it's somehow necessarily news or something new, but just uh, you know, bringing our attention again to this, to notice this field, the sensitivity, this resonance. One of my teachers, Ajahn Suchito, he describes it as that which is affected and responds. I think it's a really helpful way to understand it rather than giving it a name. It's like noticing actually what happens here. What's its experiential manifestation? This heart-mind, citta. And the Buddha's invitation with regard to this was to know this condition, this heart-mind as it is. And so what we can perhaps 
a way we could usefully understand it, or I find it helpful to reflect on, is the the way in which this particular field of affectivity, of sensitivity and responsiveness, that we could call heart, that we could call mind, that we could call heart-mind, citta, sometimes translated as consciousness, maybe spoken of also as soul in some contexts. Uh, language sometimes fits or not quite fits on the experience. But this is experienced by us in different conditions. As all experience, it is subject to conditions and it arises according to various conditions manifesting differently, moment by moment. And yet it's so integral to us, it's so central to our sense of our experience and who and what we are, that unexamined the tendency and the compulsion really to identify with the state of our heart-mind, citta, is, uh, is considerable. And so... The way I find it useful to understand it is as if we were thinking of a, a lens through which experience is received. And that lens takes on different textures and colors according to conditions. So although this heart-mind can experience things with, without distortion, it's rare that the color or that the lens itself is clear. Sometimes that can be so, and this is in fact is one of the uh, elements that develops in meditation as we see the different frames or colorations without identifying with them we can start to also recognize the clarity of the medium itself. And so it's a little bit like if we were looking at the world, if we were to take a visual image or metaphor for this, looking through glasses, and if they were colored a little, perhaps pink or gray, and if we didn't understand that they were colored, we might think the world was pink or the world was gray. And classically, you know, we might associate with some difficult mind state or condition of the citta. Sometimes we call this mind state. We might associate that with some darkening, some loss of light. So if we look through a mind state of, of sadness or grief, things might look a little grey. Or dark. Whereas if we're feeling uplifted, delighted, excited, and we look through that mind state, things might all seem rather bright or rose-colored, somehow attractive. And when we don't recognize the presence of the mind state, we tend to assume the objects appearing within it somehow intrinsically have that quality in themselves. 
we look through the the mind state of uh, delight, which is not a bad thing in itself, but then everything that we're delighted in, that we see, we think it's in the thing itself not understanding that it's arising in relationship to the state of mind. It's not to say there isn't something we might truly delight in. It's not to negate or take away that possibility. But understanding it arising as part of a process, not absolutely fixed or inherent in the object. And likewise, if we're struggling, the mind is contracted or tight, it may look like everything is kind of hostile or meaningless or boring. And just the capacity to recognize that in this particular place, it can't help when the condition of the mind is such, it cannot help but perceive experience this way. Just as when we look through a pair of colored glasses, we can't help but see the world colored in that way. But we understand that this is not actually the color of the world or of the experience, the phenomena we're in contact with. And so the Buddha encouraged us to know the state of the mind the heart-mind, to be aware of this, to make this something we reflect upon. And it's incredibly helpful to bring our attention to this. It gives us also an opportunity just to step back from the way in which we can become drawn into and entangled in the stories around our experience which are inevitably colored by the mind state the state of the heart-mind in which those stories are emerging. And so specifically we're invited to really notice when there is craving, grasping in the mind itself, in the sense of how the mind is. How it's affected the mind affected by, by craving, or the mind affected by aversion, by ill will, by hatred. And actually getting to know, sensing what that's like when we're feeling aversion. It's interesting how m many of the things we attend to seem disagreeable. You know, if we're feeling angry or irritated, the people around us kind of seem hostile perhaps and we might feel like the grounds need looking after and, you know, guy house needs a paint job. Whereas when we're feeling delighted or uplifted or joyful, everybody else seems so, so lovely to be around and the grounds are just the most exquisitely beautiful nature park. And so we can see, ah, oh, that tells us something about the state of the consciousness right now, the state of this heart-mind. It, it looks like it's telling us something about the objects, the things we're attending to. 
but it's actually telling us much more about the state of the mind and the heart right now. To notice equally the condition of the mind when engaged in in thinking patterns that correspond more to delusion, to that sense of the orientation around self and other, which of course is pervasive. Sometimes we might say ubiquitous, ongoing, always there. And yet noticing the effect of what happens when that is taking place. It's like the medium of the consciousness is is affected by it. And everything that is seen through that is seen according to what it can do for me or not. And the Buddha speaks about knowing the mind that's contracted as contracted mind. The mind that's expanded as expanded mind. And again, here I'm habitually slipping into that simplified language of calling citta mind, which is fine if we understand what that means here. The expanded heart mind, knowing what that's like. So often the sense of consciousness contracts around the object with craving and aversion when there is equanimity, when there is simple seeing of the experience as it is arising in the way it does, we may notice that contraction doesn't happen so much. And at times we may notice the the whole sense of the the heart-mind is expansive. There's space, there's room, there's a sense of extension or a less bounded or unbounded quality to it. And knowing this condition, knowing it as it is when it arises, knowing the mind when it's distracted and when it's undistracted. With these recognitions, the the it's very, I think, significant. The text doesn't say, the Buddha's not saying, oh, and make sure you avoid that one or make sure that one doesn't happen and try and have more of these ones. It's not saying, you know, give yourself a, a sort of a slap over the wrist for the distracted mind once you've discerned it. No, it's very clear. Just know the distracted mind is the distracted mind. I mean, how easy is that for us to just say, wow, mind is distracted. Mind is contracted. And interestingly, the, the, the sort of in some of the commentarial materials around this, the uh, having talked about um, knowing the mind with, with craving, with greed, and how it is in the absence of that, knowing it with aversion, and in the absence of that, knowing it with delusion, and in the absence of that, the the sense of contractedness and expansiveness is associated also with uh, 
with energy or with the absence of it. And so with dullness, heaviness, sloth, the mind is understood as being contracted. Like it doesn't have the capacity to expand. And with uh, distractedness, the mind is understood as being affected also by restlessness. So when, when we contract that, those kind of hindrance tendencies, we can see they have a particular effective quality in the mind's and the heart. And that, of course, we may recognize that when restlessness is present, the mind is likely to be easily distracted. And so there's one thing to attend to the distractedness by noticing what the distractions are, and then there's something equally useful and important in sensing this, almost like the distractibility. At this moment, the mind seems to be particularly distractible. It seems to just hook and grab everything that comes past. And it can be really helpful to, sort of in a kindly and compassionate way, just acknowledge, oh, that's how it is right now. That's what's happening. And the Buddha also talks about noticing the mind that is uplifted, exalted. The mind that is liberated. And I think in this, not necessarily requiring that to be the ultimate liberation of a uh, complete uprooting of of craving, aversion and uh, delusion, but the condition that the heart-mind is in, in the moments of letting go, when we realize it's possible to release the otherwise uh, habitual and sometimes compelling reactive contractions of craving, aversion and disconnection. And there's a sense of freeing that we notice, that we sense. And in all of these, the, again, one of the most significant things here is that it's not about setting up a, a good or bad with regard to this, but just noticing. So not despairing at the arising of the contracted mind, but neither getting too excited at the arising of the uplifted mind. Understanding conditions of the heart-mind are conditional. They change. These particular states of mind that we can know are fluid, are moving, dependent upon conditions. And the, the tendency is very much to relate to them when they're there as if they're permanent, as if they're fixed, as if this is how it is. This is how the world is and this is how Inevitably then, I am. And so the mind and the state of the mind is a very primary field for identity. The sense of who we are, so strongly bound, or can be so strongly bound to this. And 
understandably, of course, how important it is to us, the state of our heart and mind. Almost all the things we're concerned about in the world at some level come down in terms of our response to them, whether they're things we're drawn towards or things that we're concerned about to our sense of the condition of our heart and mind that this will leave me with. So things we're afraid of, for instance, we might think we're afraid of pain, but actually, seems to me, we're more afraid of the condition of my heart and mind that it gets into when I'm in pain. And if we've experienced pain from a place of equanimity, as we might have in meditation, we realize, oh yeah, pain isn't the issue. It's the contraction and the internal distress in the heart and mind. That's what I'm actually really afraid of. And I think that's really useful to recognize it also because so much of our fear is about avoiding the repetition of difficult experiences in the heart-mind from the past. And so this, this sense of what we really care about, it's, it's very close to this. And, and because of that, it's not to say we, of course, shouldn't care about it. Of course we do, and it's right. But in that caring about it, it's also very easy to somehow define ourself by it, to identify with it, to take it as me and as mine. And of course, it's not somebody else's. It's really important to be res to take responsibility for this, to see what supports, what nourishes a state of well-being and qualities that are wholesome and beneficial in this heart-mind. But in terms of the practice, we're equally invited just to notice it, just to see how it is right now. And there's a actually so one thing it's also useful to be able to, to discern and distinguish with regard to the the chitta, the heart mind, is the, the place of this particular dimension of experience within what we what we tend to sort of familiar in a familiar and often unexamined way call emotion. Emotion is an interesting thing in our culture. It's a pretty significant and major topic for many people. And it's significant and interesting that in the Buddha's teaching, there's no word for that, as far as I know. And as far as people who are much better experts on the, the sort of the Pali language that I am have suggested. Um, and so if we look at what we call emotion, we can see that it's a composite experience that includes both sensations in the body, certain patterns of thinking and cognitive activity, images and language in the mind, and a mind state, a, a particular flavoring or coloring within the heart-mind. And being able to discern that and recognize that can be very helpful. It's often when we haven't discerned the mind state, when we've identified with it, and immediately we tend to think, why is this here? Why is this particular mind state here? And we think, oh, it's because something that happened in the past, and that may be true, but um, it may not be quite as simple as the explanation we come up with. 
And we, if it's something we find pleasurable, enjoyable, we try and figure out how we produce this, imagining that we produced it, in order to somehow continue it or replicate it in the future. And so we become entangled with the story of it. If it's something we find difficult or challenging, we try and figure out how we produced this or how this came to be, so that we can bring it to an end, or how we, so we can prevent it appearing again in the future. And much of the, in a way, the entanglement with the emotional life is the way we, we move into that process of figuring out and attempting to control into the future the experience that is happening now. And much more useful, of course, is to come into the body to feel what it actually feels like in the body when the emotional process is taking place to see how close or how much space is useful to give it and sometimes we can be very close with and other times we need to give more room to emotional processes dependent on the amount of energy and intensity that they may have for us and our familiarity and dexterity with them. But to also see this is something arising in the present that can be met in this way. doesn't have to be resolved with regard to the future in terms of the practice. And so we see emotion then as something which is fluid, which is moving, and which in discerning the, in a way the, the color of the consciousness, the lens through which we are perceiving at this moment, being colored in a certain way, and that's then how the emotion gives the effect of everything being colored and not just coloured, but having an ongoing future significance in terms of that. That's where the identification and the future projection of the story makes what we call an emotion such something so compelling to us. And in terms of practice, the invitation is really just to know this experience as it is. As it is arising like this. How we feel it like this. Often again in the body so helpful as a ground and a reference for that experience. And to understand the nature, the naturalness of these processes, these experiences. There's not something wrong that it takes place in this way. And in fact, uh, in the prophet Khalil Gibran speaks about this in a beautiful poetic way that I I really, really enjoy to reflect on. He says, If you could keep your mind in wonder at the daily miracle of your life, your sorrow would not seem less wondrous than your joy. And you would accept the seasons of your heart just as you have always accepted the seasons that pass over your fields. I find this a, a very helpful and powerful image, the seasons of the heart. And again here, I think he's probably referring to the, that, that kind of emotional process, the process of our emotions, but in relationship to understanding the mind states that are intrinsic to them. It's really helpful, that sense of, of course, seasons of the heart. Sometimes it feels uplifted, sometimes it doesn't. Sometimes we feel a sense of delight. Sometimes we feel sorrow or grief. 
We might wish to live our life constantly in the summer of our heart-mind, when things are full and luxurious and there is uh, fruit and flowers and abundance, the summer of the inner life. But it's not like that in the world. Summer, beautiful, wonderful as it is, at least in cooler climates like here, summer's the, the premium season. There are other places where it's not the one people look forward to. The warm season, the hot season. But here, at least for most of us in in Europe, I imagine, that sense of summer, we might wish for its continuance, but it's not possible. It, it dies, it fades into autumn. And autumn into the harshness, the aridity, the cold of winter, in which it seems life has is withered or disappeared. And yet out of winter comes the fresh growth of spring. The seasons of the heart are like this. When we make space for the different states of mind and heart, when we allow the emotional life to be in motion, to move, to not fix it or grasp it through identifying with it, through taking it to be me, to be mine, to be definitive of who or what we are, while at the same time not pushing it away, not somehow making it nothing to do with me, or nothing of relevance to me. It has its relevance. And that relevance is that there is learning to be had from this, and there is the opportunity for practicing what it means to be awake in the presence of this too. To neither push it away, nor bind ourselves to the experience in identifying with it. And of course, mind states are subtle. It's not always possible to see what we're looking through. By the very nature of it, that's tricky. It would be kind of obvious if there was a big pair of glasses and the rims of the glasses were coloured extra dark versions of the tint that we have in the lens. And we could tell when we <coughs> put the red rimmed glasses on with the pink lenses, ah, things look all pink and lovely right now. Ah, that'll be the red rim glasses. Or if we put on the black rim glasses with the grey tints and everything looks kind of dull and flat. Again, that would be obvious. It's not that obvious for us. But as a practice, it's incredibly fruitful and beneficial to just notice this, notice these. Ha, huh, this is how it appears. Ha, huh, that might mean that the world is actually this way, or it might mean that right now the mind is in this condition. This heart-mind is arising in this particular way. And with this, whether contracted or expanded, whether coloured by reactivity or uncoloured in equanimity, whether there's a, a boundness in the heart-mind or a sense of release, just knowing this and in the knowing of it, noticing the conditions in which this arises, the heart and mind naturally incline towards that which is expansive and and open.
So please continue in your practice through these days. Leaving nothing out. And we can just sit for a minute or two together to, to finish. So may our practice deepen in clear seeing and in this capacity to include all things, to leave no thing out for our own well-being and for the welfare of all beings, for the well-being of all that is. (laughs) 